0: Hey there! Welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Brian Ford. Brian is the co-founder of Four Purpose, a social impact platform modernizing what it means to be a philanthropist. He is also the host of Self-Improvement Daily, a podcast that shares a unique personal development insight in two minutes every single day. He's been doing this for nearly three years at this point, every day, and it has just over 7 million downloads. And finally, he's a startup business development professional who recently took his startup RecoverX through an acquisition with an industry leader in the athletic recovery tech space. On this interview, we learn how Brian honed his podcasting intuition by publishing a thousand daily podcast episodes over three years. We learn why investing in your personal brand is about the relationships that you built and the opportunity that arose for Brian to co-found a company together from it. And we learn what Brian discovered through his company acquisition and why there needs to be a punchy, digestible phrase that everyone knows and believes in order to create a strong company culture. This was a great interview jam-packed with nuggets. I hope you enjoy. Brian, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Bren. I appreciate you. All right. Well, let's jump into it. And when we originally connected two years ago in 2019, it was right around the time when you took the stage for your TED Talk. And you talked about your philosophy of do it for the story that inspired you to get more out of life. One of the central themes of this was taking risks. And that in order to progress, you have to be a risk taker. You have to have skin in the game. So I thought we could kick off by asking what's a risk that you've taken in recent memory that has made for a more meaningful story for you?
1: I don't necessarily equate do it for the story with taking risk. I see it as more exploring opportunity and just seeing what the world has available to you. I think a risk usually involves some kind of trade-off between, oh, how is my safety? What am I missing out on? Versus kind of the decision that you are choosing to make. Um, And when it comes to do it for the story, it's very much about just thinking abundantly in terms of, I don't know what I'm missing out on. I don't even know what I have access to. Let me just get myself in this frame of mind and just kind of really receive what the world has to offer. You know, so Do It For The Story is very much about embracing the possibility of the world and letting it just kind of funnel and and flow through you in the ways it's meant to, that you might not necessarily have the recognition of creating for yourself. One of the kind of ways I stepped out of my comfort zone recently in the spirit of Do It For The Story happened two days ago. I got a random text from somebody. I didn't have their contact save. So I kind of like scrolled through and I saw that we had a brief texting history where he was in San Diego, where which is where I'm based one time. And he was trying to link up with me being like, hey, cool, I'm in town. What are you doing? It just fell through. It was very disorganized. And all I know is this guy's name is Jeremy. And he, is, he we have a mutual friend. And he's like, hey, this person said to, to be in touch. So I was trying to do it for the story that time and bend over backwards to see him. It just wasn't in the cards. But then randomly, probably nine months later, this random phone number texts me again. I have no idea who this person is. And he just goes, Hey, I'm driving down to San Diego. You want to link up? I'm like, okay, cool. When? He said, Oh, I'll be there in an hour. And I'm like, okay, I've got plans until this time, but sure. If you want to come by my place at seven 30, then we can run and grab ice cream, you know? So he's like, okay, cool down. Let's do it. And I'm like, I don't know who this guy is, but I'll do it for the story. Let's see what happens. Let's see what comes of it. Well, long story short, Jeremy shows up and there's only one Jeremy that I know or kind of have in my network and I should have recognized it was going to be him. But this is a person that I've done a lot of Zoom calls with. We have a lot of mutual friends. And it's funny because he didn't know who I was and I didn't know who he was, but we just had this kind of understanding of, oh, this is the person that we're supposed to spend time with this evening. So that risk was, I had no idea who the person was on the other line of this text. I just knew that there was some familiarity Of course, I I guard my time closely, but I was like, you know what? This thing just has the energy and kind of the aura of something that might be valuable, something that I might enjoy doing. So I took the chance on it and it ended up being a fantastic conversation. We walked around my neighborhood for an hour and a half and he taught me a lot of things and challenged me in certain ways that I'm taking moving forward. And he and I are going to be collaborating on certain things too. So it's just like that mentality of let's see what happens and putting yourself out there in areas where you could fail, you could look like an idiot, you could feel stupid, But oftentimes, I'd say the far majority of times, that doesn't happen. You end up really enjoying the experience. You really get something unique out of it. That's what Do It For The Story has done for me in my life. It's created opportunity out of nothing time and time again. And that happened just a few days ago because I said yes to something that came upon my plate that a lot of people would have said no to. But I said yes, and now I have kind of an awesome experience and a new friend because of it.
0: What I'm hearing there is that it wasn't so much... Because you didn't know who Jeremy was in person, you had to trust your instincts to look for a set of signals. And you were reading from this text, you were trying to understand, is this something that's worth my time? And am I going to invest in seeing this person or not? Because everyone has trade-offs, of course, and people that listen to this show, time is their most valuable asset. If you replay that interaction in your head, what were some of the signals or tells that you were able to see from your conversation with Jeremy that allowed you to come to the conclusion that this was an opportunity worth taking. This was a story worth investing in.
1: It's about context. And you really have got to read into the context around you, right? So I went through that text thread And I remember, you know, one of my friends, Sarah King, who I just adore, was the person that he referenced. So I was like, okay, if he's a friend of Sarah, he's probably a good person, right? So there was kind of like, check that. And then a second angle of that was, what were my plans for that evening? And I actually was kind of in a mood where I just wasn't feeling like myself. I was kind of feeling down on myself for certain things. And I was like, what usually picks me up out of this? You know, some like quality conversation, some social interaction. And then here, this came on my plate. And I was like, okay, if I have the availability and I know that this is something that fills one of my needs currently, then check, right? So it's going to be productive in one sense or another. But I think more than anything, it's intuitive, Ben. You get this feeling that there's something more to be found. And the fact that you even had that hit and had that feeling means that kind of the universe or the possibility in itself has the equity that allows you to understand that there's value to be pulled from it so the reason that it's even in your awareness in the first place and that you're considering it in the first place speaks to the opportunity that you can grab into so i I think there's kind of a comprehensive decision tree here as it relates to like when these different things come on your plate but you know if you feel that pull that pull is there for some reason and if that pull is there for some reason then do it for the story becomes one of the opportunities and one of the ways to actually extract value from it and to move through it, to really pursue it. So those are some of the things I was thinking about. Like, am I safe? Okay. Is this person probably cool? Okay. Am I doing anything else? You know, what is the trade-off or consequence to this? You know, there's nothing huge. So at that point, it was just like, okay, let me take a chance on this. You know, what's the worst that could happen?
0: And context was able to inform your instinct there because as founders and CEOs, we're constantly trying to hone this skill of judgment, hone the skill of decision-making. And there will be times where you're put in situations that you haven't read before. There's no prescription, no book to read that is going to give you the answer here. And so from your story, we can learn that one of the things that informs instinct is context. What is the wider scenario around this person, this opportunity that's going to allow me to make that, that judgment call?
1: I think instinct involves awareness, right? And you think of manifestation and like being conscious and understanding spirituality a little bit, it's all about awareness. So your instinct is delivered and manifested through the things that you are aware of. I think that's interesting how you can tie that back to context. It's what you're aware of within your context that informs that intuition. But your intuition does depend on your awareness. That's something I've been
0: thinking about recently. There's a, a quote from someone, I can't remember who it is, who says, we, we make things conscious so that we may make them subconscious. And one of the things Mm. that really strikes me about routine and disciplined habits is that you can be chipping away at them every single day, getting up at a regular time, getting to work by a certain time, putting in the hours so that eventually, yes, it might still be hard, but it doesn't feel like a conscious effort. It kind of feels kind of baked in. And what I'm hearing from this is that the ability to have a sharp instinct, whether that is seeing the chess move that the rookie misses and the grandmaster sees or understanding the flavor sprinkled into a dish that's going to bring that dish to life. That comes from an awareness that comes from a wider understanding of the field in which you're playing. I wonder how you approach that with your podcast and self-improvement daily. So you've been putting out an episode every day for how long now? Just over three years, end of April, made three years. So we are looking at, if not a thousand episodes, pretty much give or take. And in that time, you must have honed your podcasting instinct quite seriously. What do you think were some of the actions or steps that you've taken along your journey to producing those thousand episodes that have allowed you to instinctively
1: cultivate a good ear for what makes a compelling podcast? I think there's two different sides to that. The first is just the content itself. People aren't going to listen unless it's good. So you've got to really hone that ear to what do people want to listen to, what's going to be valuable. And for me, I feel like necessity has created that ear. You know, if I am responsible and accountable to creating a new personal development tip, approach, mentality, mindset, exercise, observation, whatever, and share that with an audience, then that's something that, I need to be actively adding to my life so that I can reflect on it and share it with others. So what it did was, you know, in Self-Improvement Daily is a daily podcast because it started as an Amazon Alexa flash briefing, which then made the format of two minutes every single day, you know, part of what I was doing, right? So I had necessity built into delivering on that promise of two minutes every single day. So I just became really observant of my outside world and questioning and becoming curious about the things that were happening, both with myself and the situations and interactions that I was a part of in the different things that I was seeing others do, right? And just that first part of tying in everything you were mentioning is related to creating high quality content that is relevant. So what it did was it made me shift my awareness and approach toward all of these different possibilities of things that I could learn and really, again, kind of like pull value out of that. The second side of it, which is more of kind of like the put on the corporate hat and what do you do for like a podcast is understand the intention that people have in listening to your podcast. What is their purpose? What are they looking for? And the reason that self-improvement daily grew to the extent that it did, you know, I gained an awareness was around search engine optimization, specifically on podcasts. So many people who found my podcast punched in Self improvement to the search bar on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever they listen, they found self improvement daily. They're like, okay, cool. That's a direct match between the query that I had and the need that I have, which is self improvement. And this podcast probably delivers that because there's that direct keyword attribution, right? So then I was able to start kind of understanding people's customer journey and being okay if they're searching self improvement in the search bar, what emotion, what trigger is bringing them into that? So that's that's something that they're looking for in their life and validating that with market research and having conversations with my audience, I realized that there's a lot of people that have experienced trauma that are looking to personal development to be able to overcome trauma. And that's their trigger. There's a lot of people that have a new form of independence. So they want to rediscover their independence, maybe because of a divorce or because of a big breakup. And they're trying to figure out who they are and they turn to personal development. So knowing that people have their stories and reasons for congregating around what I'm doing, I can then shape my content to solve their problems and to speak to them in a specific way so that it resonates as deeply as possible. So there's a lot of customer avatar work that I've done in order to know who I'm serving, how I can serve them, what they need, and then ultimately, what can I produce that's valuable to all of those different criteria to really meet them where they're at. The nice thing about the breakdown
0: there is that the self-improvement moniker or umbrella that ties all this together, you've immediately identified a couple of subsets and you're able to create content that speaks to that micro set of the audience. So people using self-improvement to overcome trauma. That brings up a whole psychological therapeutic aspect to the podcast. People using self-improvement because they've just read their first nonfiction book and are looking for other book recommendations, book breakdowns, frameworks. That's going to be another subset. And so realizing that you might have this umbrella term, like for subject matter, it's building culture. For you listening at home, that's going to be related to your business's purpose and mission probably. But within that, you have these subcultures, these sub niches, and being able to break down that overarching idea into its constituent content pillars. That's what's going to allow you to create messaging or test messaging that resonates with different aspects of your audience, different angles, and not just applying a one cookie cutter, one size fits all idea to everybody
1: in your circle. It takes work. You can use your intuition and impressions and kind of the first slice of what you think it is, but then diving deeper to ask those people, what are their problems? You know, take the 20 minutes to grab a phone call with someone and have that list of questions that you're going to go through. It's not something that that happens on its own. If you want to be correct and informed in the insights that you're deriving from some of this market research, you know, of course, pair your own impressions Everything fits within your own mental model and that's what makes you a unique thinker is you can be that house that all this information sits within. But beyond that, make sure that you're getting the relevant information so you can make your own decisions based on it. Well, let's switch tack slightly
0: here to the relationships that you have cultivated because what we're going to come to later with four purpose is that there is a real tribe that you're building here of people as part of the company. And one of the tidbits that we picked up on in preparing for the show is that one of your mentors told you early on in your career to invest in building your personal brand. And that's led to this hybrid career that you have, if you like, of deep sales expertise combined with founding for purpose and the other third part of the triangle, a prolific podcaster at the same time. How has nurturing relationships with, say, your mentor, for example, allowed you to unlock these other additional opportunities in your career? If you had to quantify or measure the impact that these relationships have had on you as a co-founder and co-CEO of For Purpose, what would you say those that
1: impact is? It's been everything. I feel like the relationships are the fuel and the lubricant to growth and accelerating what you're doing. The point that you mentioned, you know, Brian Rashid is one of my early mentors. He's the one that encouraged me to get on LinkedIn in the first place, start creating content, building a personal brand. And that was just more a forward-thinking approach to, okay, what's the way that the marketplace is shifting and how can you position yourself to be able to present yourself for different opportunities, you know? So that's what originally was my personal brand, but then Self-Improvement Daily And very much so through your guidance and actually introducing a self-improvement sit-down series, which is an interview series, allowed me to be able to lead with value with people that I wanted to bring into my corner. So being able to say, hey, I've got this audience of people that are aligned around this thing. Do you have a book to promote? Do you have a new podcast coming out? Do you have some campaign that you're trying to get more visibility toward? I was able to deliver some of the assets and value that I have to offer for people that I wanted to bring into my circle. When it comes to, you know, the idea of mentorship, it's all about reciprocal value. There is a reason they're investing in you and there's clearly a reason, you know, you're investing in them if you're the mentee. I think that idea of mentorship, it's, you know, so many people are bombarded with messages and if you want to stand out from the crowd, what can you do to help them? You know, lead with value, lead of service. It's just something that I've been able to do and prioritize throughout my entire life and I've made it a pillar to the way that I interact and approach people is how can I be of service? Because I know that is the most authentic and sustainable way to build a relationship. And ultimately, I don't want to have a one and done transaction with someone that I really look up to. I want to build a strong foundational infrastructure around this is what our relationship can be. This is how I want to relate with you. This is what I can continue to offer for you. And let me prove that to you. You know, And that's where a conversation like this on a podcast, you know, people can hear pretty quickly if you're smart, you know what you're doing, and if you've thought it through, and if you've taken the you know, time to learn about them and their history and ask good questions and stand out. That's kind of the first side of it on the personal branding, is your personal brand is very much about who you know. What is your the proximity principle, right? Like who is within your reach and who have you affiliated with previously, because then that's going to be the magnet or the social proof that other people are going to use to leverage your platform or to you know to be able to exercise the value that you have to offer them the fun side is then the creative side so once you have that relationship and you have these mentors because you've been able to build your personal brand to get their attention now what do you do with it and the great story with that is yeah a cascade of do it for the story actually so i met near a y'all on the podcast because he had his new book indistractable about to launch he has changed my life with his original book, Hooked, and then Indistractable, I was involved in kind of like the launch promotion and everything. So I brought him on the podcast. It had like a pre-version copy of the book that I read, was able to feature it, created all of these assets for him, just really add value, right? So we ended up being friends on Facebook. It was through Facebook that I actually learned about who Case Kenny is. So Case Kenny is the podcaster, uh, New Mindset Who this? He's also the founder of Pursuit, which is a big email list around personal development. What happened was... Near y'all on Facebook posted about Case Kenny's new journal coming out about a personal development journal. What ended up happening was I reached out to Case. I was like, hey, I'm going to feature you anything in particular. He's like, oh, awesome, dude. Really appreciate that. Yeah, go for it. So then we grabbed a coffee. I told him about what I was up to. I was able to build a relationship with him and kind of, again, show my value, show what I had to offer. Just four months later or so, Case Kenny and I became co-founders of For Purpose. So it's like that is A true story of how my personal brand and the relationships that I cultivated by leading of being a person of service ended up creating this opportunity to build a relationship with someone who's now a co-founder and has a ton to offer for a project I'm really passionate about. It's a great story. And I think it hits on one of the key
0: points with personal branding is that personal branding isn't a goal. It's a means to an end. The goal is building trusted relationships at scale. It just so happens that we have this tool called the internet, which allows us to facilitate that so quickly. You wouldn't have been able to, A, distribute cases, journal to the extent that you did without the internet, and B, meet up with him so quickly and and connect we're in this ever-accelerating world where those opportunities, those serendipity moments are clashing faster and faster than ever. So seeing this as a vehicle to build the right kind of relationship is, I think, a great mindset to be viewing this through. That gives us a really nice segue into For Purpose. Congratulations on the, uh, the one-year anniversary of the baby turning one years old. That's, um, <laughs> Thank you. yeah, that's, uh, that's exciting. Now, You co-founded this to solve a generational problem that's not about how much you have to give, it's what you do with what you have. And on your website, it says that for purpose or purpose is a lifestyle that anyone can live. And we're dedicated to changing the standard once and for all. Now, the problem on forpurpose.com, you say, is that there's a belief that the only way someone can make money is by volunteering or donating money. How did you guys surface this problem and realize that was something you wanted to
1: build a community and a company around to change the way that the world sees it? As it relates to the kind of intention of For Purpose, it really did originate in response to COVID and us recognizing that we're all going to die. And a lot of people died in a short amount of time, just crazy with a global pandemic, right? So we're all going to die. And when we're on our deathbed, you know, you can think of Bronnie Ware and kind of the regrets of the dying and one of her insights there. But, you know, you also just think about meaning and significance. You know, when you do die, what did you stand for? What did you leave behind? I think a lot of people in those moments turn back to what difference did I make for others? How did I contribute to this world? There's kind of been an odd and unfortunate relationship with that idea of making a difference that has been almost indoctrinated by previous generations around the idea of, oh, well, you know, the best way that you can make a difference is by being a philanthropist, by donating a lot of money, by volunteering your time in significant major ways. And even you think of the Gates and Branson pledge, which is the billionaire's pledge or whatever. It's about many billionaires are donating half of their net worth to causes. But if you actually go to the Giving Pledge website, it says at the very bottom saying, if you don't have a billion dollars, you know, that's okay. You can still get involved in your local community, which is just such a disempowering thought being like, oh, well, what do you have to offer? Isn't anything compared to what the people in our group have to offer. And I think that that's just representative of the relationship a lot of people at large have with philanthropy and social good. Ultimately, at Four Purpose, what we're doing is we're modernizing that relationship and that definition of what it means to be a philanthropist. A philanthropist is thought to have millions of dollars to donate. They're thought to have their name on a building somewhere for their contribution. And they're on the board of advisors of a nonprofit, right? These are really high leverage and impactful social opportunities, but they're not necessarily accessible to the everyday person. So what it does is it creates this separation between the ideal of the philanthropist that everyone sees in headlines and your personal means. What do you actually have to offer? And with that incongruency, people shy away from the idea of social impact because eh, what I have to offer isn't enough to compare to what I see others doing. And even if you think about the major issues in the world, pollution, carbon emissions, et cetera, how can your single contributions of limiting my own plastics and carpooling to work or having an electric vehicle, how does that offset the major emissions and the major uh, waste management issues that we have in the world? Mm. It's hard to see that as an individual. And that's where for-purpose comes in, As we do two different things. First, we feature everyone about their social impact regardless of the size. So we celebrate someone who donates $5 just the same as someone who donates $500,000 because it's the intent to give back within your means that matters. We democratize that process and we help people realize that, yes, you are uniquely capable of contributing singularly as an individual. What you do have to offer matters. But then the second step is, you know, with respect to that larger change you want to see, you're taking action alongside a community of other people that are aligned and on purpose and wanting to contribute in the same way, now your single contribution is one of the drops in the waterfall of change. And that waterfall is only possible with every single drop falling the same direction. So by getting people together within their own means and adding them together so that they can collectively approach these issues and you can collectively measure your impact because you're part of this larger group. Now you start to recognize that you can make a difference, right? You can be a change maker. The root etymology of the word philanthropy is philo-anthropo. Philo, meaning love, and anthropo, meaning mankind. All you need to do to be a philanthropist is love mankind. You don't need millions of dollars. And I feel like we have this backwards definition around how we can make a difference because of the standard that has been set by past generations, So, you know, this movement for purpose is about re-educating people on their ability to contribute, how when they get involved, it does make a difference in cultivating that energy and the lifestyle around impact versus transacting with impact as we currently do in the nonprofit sector with volunteering and donations. So it's broadening that lens by which we see social impact and helping people recognize that they fit within that lens in that spectrum in their own way. There's been a pretty prolific
0: story in the news in recent weeks, which I think adds to the 4 purpose thesis in a really neat way, which is the catastrophic attempt to found the European Super League. So here in Europe, for those of you who don't know, The biggest football teams in the continent decided to get together and they were going to make what they called a Super League. So think Barcelona, think Juventus, Chelsea, Arsenal, all of the biggest clubs in Europe basically, with a few exceptions, decided they were going to band together and break away from their constituent leagues. And this is going to basically make them more money. It was going to concentrate more power and more capital in this little league. The broadcasting rights to see these best clubs would be through the roof, and they would be the kind of sole hub of top-tier European football. Now, the footballers didn't oppose them. The press had some backlash. They didn't really oppose them. Governments got involved, pretty serious, but again, probably still would have gone through. But the people who stopped the European Super League from being started, who stopped the English, the Spanish, the Italian clubs, were the fans. It was the fans who campaigned outside of the football stadiums. There was a Chelsea fan who said, we want our cold, rainy away days back. They want to work in the Premier League. They want to support in the Premier League or in League One or Serie A, wherever it is. And within a matter of days, some of the most powerful people on the planet had to get in front of a camera and issue an apology. We are talking like Roman Abramovich. We are talking billionaire football club owners from all over the world were forced to say, you've crossed a line, you've gone too far, and the people are taking back power. The interesting thing there is that you might be wondering, well, where's the parallel? But sports acts as a really nice microcosm of human psychology. It has competition, it has pride, it has rivalry, it has teams that win and lose, everything that goes on in life and business. And what we can learn from this is that it is ultimately the fans that hold control. It is the masses, the people who show up. And if you're listening to this, unless we do have a rogue billionaire or two listening to subject matter, which I doubt, you are probably one of those fans. You are one of the people who has the power. And it's when those people come together and are able to unite under a common goal we have more pushback than we might think. And the media does a very good job of saying the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. But actually, it doesn't matter how much you have, so long as you're able to align behind a common goal. And I think that's the really nice thing about For Purpose is your thesis definitely supports this idea that change can start at the bottom up.
1: I love that idea. I'm a big soccer, football fan. I played college soccer. So yeah, I was watching that closely, just being like, and I knew from the very beginning, like that is just a horrible idea. And then- yeah, everyone realized it was. I think a another parallel to that is the revolt of Wall Street bets on Reddit, right? And how everyone started shorting GameStop in order to counteract what the, you know, the big traders were doing on Wall Street. I think that is another example of how the people stood up and the people were able to change the way that society was behaving. I don't know enough about that example to get into detail, but it's kind of a similar premise, which is I think technology has facilitated this information to get out where people's voices are louder than ever. And people can find groups and others that align with their belief system for better or worse, that empowers them to drive change. And I think that's a a really eloquent example in bringing that together. At For Purpose, the ultimate goal is for us to create that collective shift in the way that capitalism and commerce works, right? So if we have more people that are embracing their impact, they're making decisions that are in alignment with the change they want to see, they are more likely to purchase consciously, they're more likely to recommend conscious brands, and the people that drive the marketplace are the consumers. So if we start getting consumers to prioritize impact and really Highlighting the quadruple bottom line that is developing, right? Profit, people, planet, purpose. The quadruple bottom line that's emerging, brands are going to be accountable to answering to that if they want to continue with business. So that's the exact same ideas. We are a by the people, for the people movement that wants to see a better world. We know that sure, the carbon emissions and the waste management issues that are happening from mega corporations are impossible to offset with our singular contribution. But if we together start changing the supply-demand curve a little bit and making these corporations more accountable to some of the things we want to see in the world, we can do it. We absolutely can do it. And we just need a roof to all sit under in order to make it happen. So that's what four purpose is. It's home for those who want to see a better world. And we try and squeeze as much out of everybody as we can in their personal habits, but also in their advocacy so that we can educate others and teach others about this vision for the world that we see and how we're going to be creating it together. So
0: let's flip it on its head for a second. We've talked about the grassroots dynamic of the community. Some of our listeners are founders and CEOs who are more experienced. And let's say they want to get involved with For Purpose and perhaps they have more experience to offer. They can teach people in other ways. They could be that mentor that you mentioned that was able to put you onto personal branding that started this journey to co-founding For Purpose years later. So what is the role of someone who perhaps is a bit more
1: advanced, who does have more of that impact? Where would they slot into For Purpose? So one of the events that we did was we actually hosted an impact workshop for a nonprofit in Nigeria called Chess and Slums. I was able to connect with one of the founders and tried to understand the four greatest problems he was facing as it came to the ways that he was trying to bring his vision to the world, the way that he was trying to drive change through his cause, which Chess and Slums is educating Kids in Nigeria through chess. It's connecting them internationally with other kids, helping them realize the value of education, and even is a a conduit to providing internet access for these kids in remote villages in Nigeria, which is obviously a huge accelerant of education, right? So we had this impact workshop and we had people in our community come in and provide consultative advice directly to the founder of this nonprofit about, hey, so you've got an interview with CNN coming up. These are the different talking points you need to make sure that you focus on. Hey, so you have this business development opportunity with chess.com as a partnership. How can you make sure that you get the most out of this contract and that you get your rights in place in advance? So people with this expertise, if you think of charity work, right? It's either manual labor or it's donating your money. It's not highly skill and in, skill investment. It is kind of more of that general application of your body. But what we're trying to do is create unique skill-based opportunities for people who have a lot to offer to be able to add that in a comfortable and easy way to nonprofits who can benefit from it. So that's the first side of it is kind of a community event around supporting a specific nonprofit and using your skills intelligently in service of that nonprofit or cause, whatever it might be. What I believe to be true about a community and a community-based organization is it's not about the organization to be on stage it's the community members who are the on the stage that you've created for them so one of the things that we want to incorporate is bringing people who have big ideas for the world that they want to see it's like hey in my local community i see this problem i don't necessarily know how to get it off the ground we can bring talent from the for-purpose community to workshop these new ideas that are budding from within our community to give them all of the tools resources and thoughts expertise, experience they need to be able to realize that vision to create the local change that they feel called to serve. So it's being able to connect these skilled and and highly intelligent people with a lot to offer into this more like social impact and social change space so that now everyone's applying their skills toward this sector. And then that will be the catalyst that allows someone in the community to realize their vision for a better world right so it's this collaborative approach that we're really trying to embrace it for a purpose where we're connecting people we're connecting skills we're connecting ideas ultimately we're building relationships around some of these things that we're all inspired to do and and we just want to be that hub and that home for people to feel comfortable enough to stand up and say i don't want this in the world anymore i want to fix it who's going to help me that's down the road, right? That's, it takes a lot of infrastructure and time to build there. But knowing that that's part of the vision and already having executed an event that succeeded in that way is a, an optimistic point that we can build around as it relates to the future for purpose and our community's con- contribution in that way. So realize that it doesn't matter where you're coming in at.
0: The skill that you have is irrelevant, really. It's the It's the mindset that underpins that. I think a good way to look at collective mindsets is culture. And this is the theme of our season. So I'd love for you to define, first of all, Brian, what culture means to you as an idea.
1: I think culture is more felt than described. Culture is very much around the frequency that you're putting out that other people are responding to. I think culture is collectively created. Of course, leadership has the ability to instill a certain culture and set the tone for the way that other people fit in to a certain culture or a certain organization. Culture is an energy that pervades the people that are exposed to the organization, both internally and externally. When it relates to for purpose in our culture, one of the first things we did was list out some of the values that we want to live by, right? So we talk about being of service, gratitude, inclusivity, being able to make sure that these are incorporated in everything that we do. And just getting on the same page in advance allows that just to be integrated and embedded in a part of everything we do. Another part of culture is realizing the breadth and scope and context around how we all interface with our work together. So in the example of For Purpose, This is something that we're doing on the side. Our income isn't built into it. So expectations need to meet that, right? So being a little bit more forgiving or understanding or patient with those who have other responsibilities that sometimes need to take priority knowing this kind of larger context around what is that shared mission and what is our shared life path in being able to make sure that we're treating everyone that is involved in this project fairly because ultimately... We want everyone to express themselves as best as they can because that's when they bring their best is when they feel like they can be themselves and they don't feel like they're neglecting other things. So to me, culture are just some of those values that you have integrated into the way that you do things and setting that example through the decisions you make, the way the interactions you have, the things that you do that then diffuses into everything related to you know the organization and those who, who interact with it. So that goes to the community members as well in terms of our sensitivity and understanding of who they are and where they're coming from. I like this definition or this idea that culture is values
0: integrated into the way that you do things. What was one of the big decisions that your founding team made with For Purpose that you feel like was fueled by the values that your company upholds?
1: The best example of that would be our incorporation status, right? If we're in the social good space, there's a lot of gray area in terms of, oh, are you a nonprofit? Are you a for-profit? Are you a benefit corporation? Are you a social enterprise? Are you this? Are you that, right? So there's a lot of decisions to make as you're trying to make a difference. You know, there's different designations and everything embedded in that. And one of the values that we decided upon was innovation and disruption. And again, like if we're talking about modernizing what it means to be a philanthropist, like that is a disruptive idea that is forcing people to think differently. People pause. So we want that innovation and in spirit of kind of iteration to be part of what we're doing. So in doing so, it would probably make more sense given what our goals are to create a nonprofit around for purpose, because our decision was to, you know, we're not getting rich off of this. You know, we have separate jobs. If we end up generating income, sure, but this is going to be a fair income. We're trying to create a better world, and this is not going to be that venture capital big exit that we're all looking for. With that in mind, how is that reflected in the decisions that we're making? So it came back to this distinction of what's our incorporation status? A nonprofit is that traditional way of thinking. It's linear. You know, you know what's expected of you. There's a lot of different things that are imposed upon you that would restrict us in terms of the things we want to accomplish. And given that we chose that innovation disruption is going to be something that is foundational to what we're doing, then that is not compliant. That decision to be a nonprofit isn't compliant. Then, you know, we got creative. It's like, well, if it's a for-profit, that doesn't hold us accountable as much to, or at least, you know, through the lens and perception of other people to what we're trying to create. So that's where we kind of found that middle ground of being a public benefit corporation. But I'd say that's kind of an example of, how we had options in front of us, we thought through what our values are, what the implications of those values are in the decision specifically. And then from there, we were able to make the decision that was in alignment with those values.
0: You said something really interesting at the end, which is it's not just the values you have, it's the implication of those values. I'm seeing this as a really... Powerful mental model. I think I'm going to steal this from you to be honest, which is the idea that we have company core values and then thinking through okay, well, if we're applying them to help us see around corners and understand where this is going to end up, what is the implication of that value? So we are going to become a public benefit corporation. What does that imply? How does that change the decisions we make every day? Here at Astutely, one of our core values is EQ before IQ. So if someone's had a really long day and I'm going to apply EQ before IQ, what is the implication of that value of saying, actually, they might've just worked 10 hours today, maybe don't give them another task or maybe push that till next week, give them the space to recharge, recover, whatever that might be. But being able to Take a step forward and not just see values as this static piece of paper that people look at once in an all hands meeting or a monthly town hall, but it is something that people apply and they apply because they are consciously thinking about the effects that those values might have in their on their day-to-day.
1: Yeah, certainly. And it's something that kind of relates back to personal development too. I mean, because when it comes to your own choices and behaviors, you know, something I'm a strong advocate for is making the one decision that makes 99% of your other decisions. So if you set the tide, set the values, and then now you're accountable to integrating everything else that happens within that original intention, then it's going to be able to point out the options that don't fit. Sometimes decision-making isn't about choosing the right thing. It's making sure you don't choose the wrong things. Being able to have those values, not only existent, but literally, you know, being spoken into the things that you're doing and woven into the decisions you're making is a great way to, I think, inject some more culture and the values of your culture into the sustainable operation versus just the headline, let's point to it on the wall kind of relationship. That's a good analogy. And I like what you said as well, that
0: making decisions isn't necessarily about choosing the right thing. It's about making sure that you're not doing the wrong thing. Maybe we could, for our final segment, talk about the startup that you have recently just taken through acquisition, RecoverX. What's it been like seeing the difference between your culture at your original company and now merging into a larger culture at your acquiring company? Has that changed the way that you think about company culture on the whole? Or perhaps
1: another way to think about it is if that has provided any interesting parallels or distinctions between the two? It has been a process for sure. Yeah. So to summarize that, I was kind of the customer facing everything for RecoverX, which was a startup rehabilitative device company. Uh, Don't really give myself a title because in a startup, it's hard to know what it is, but just customer facing everything and then integrated and was acquired in December by Hyperice, which is a leading recovery technology company. Partnerships with uh, NFL, MLB, PGA, NBA. Patrick Mahomes is an investor athlete, you know, like we have access to crazy talent now, which is definitely accelerating our vision for what we're doing and of course the exit is nice for all of our bank accounts but what's been interesting is how drastically the culture shifted it's been an entirely different job even though i'm working in the same industry and talking to a lot of the same people externally the ways that i need to do that have certainly changed I think as it relates to culture, so reflecting on RecoverX, we had a very collaborative culture. We were very in tuned with what everyone was doing because it diffused or kind of leaked into what we were doing to some shape or form. We had weekly meetings where it'd be like, okay, what's on your plate? What's the progress that you've made so that I know just as well what's happening with our software development as I know with our marketing campaigns. And everyone on the team had that same kind of level of knowledge. Of course, as a company is, you know, grows and scales, that's not possible because there's more that you're doing and there's more people to keep in the loop. And that's been the big transition is, you know, at Hyperice, the acquiring company is I am part of a team in a department Mm -hmm. where we have our specific initiatives and focus points. And then it's up to us to reach out and figure out the information that rounds our understanding of what else is going on within the, the machine so that we can use that to inform the way that we handle our specific department, it really has become more of a designed collaboration and stay up to speed in kind of like a meeting that was like more of a small team mentality. Into a you have to go out and pursue it for yourself if you want to know what's going on. You know at RecoverX we had more implicit values we never really talked about exactly. Oh, is what we're standing for the change that we want to create. But you know since we work so closely together, we just were on the same page. At Hyperice, what I've noticed is if you want to really create an effective culture around your vision, there needs to be a punchy, digestible, easy to understand expression that everybody in the company knows and believes in. So that version of it, that expression at Hyperice is we are helping everybody on earth move better. And it's because it's a physical recovery company, meaning that there's different rehabilitation modalities that help people if they're, you know, in chronic pain, post-injury, if they're an athlete, if they're even senior care. So all of our efforts are around that core vision to this is what we're doing is we're facilitating a world where everyone on earth has the access to these modalities so that they can move better. If we wanted to go into the 10 different checkpoints to success within Hyperice, Ice there would be retention issues if we asked everyone to learn about that, right? It just wouldn't necessarily be possible because now you're taking time out of people's day to go to do this thing and then you have to make sure it's correct. Are you going to test them, right? You know, it's, it just becomes difficult. Of course, you can make that information accessible, but when it comes to your responsibility as a bigger corporation, I've come to understand that you've got to simplify that mission statement as much as possible so that everyone can quickly pick it up and use it for themselves. So that's probably the the biggest kind of culture shift that I've noticed. It's It's turned into from originally a larger kind of more nebulous and dynamic vision into a this is what we're all bought into and it is plain and simple. And I can imagine that as the company scales,
0: the access that frontline workers, if you like, have to the leadership team Right at the top, the C-suite diminishes because there's more people in the company. price having over 100 employees, you're going to naturally have a, a gap in the organizational structure. If you extrapolate that out to thousands of employees or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, looking at like an Amazon, a Facebook, I think Amazon's over a million now, you need to have the exact same purpose and mission branded across the company. So no matter who it is, whether it's the warehouse worker loading the boxes or the chief marketing officer about to pivot the whole marketing strategy for the next quarter, they are aligned on the same purpose or the same mission. And it's that simplicity that I like that you you called out there that makes that accessible or possible.
1: Yeah, and it's something that I have been observant of. I haven't had to necessarily build that for myself. You know, I hope with For Purpose as it grows that, you know, we're going to get creative about how we can make sure that everyone has that same core message and they can rehearse it and speak into it and believe it and feel it just like the founders do. But that's going to be in a, ch- a challenge that I'm excited to come across. And, and culture certainly is going to be a focal point to what we're doing because ultimately what we're trying to create is, people that are aligned around a common good. And I think culture is that articulation of people who, who relate with each other. You know, there's an element of culture that almost is the demonstration of that specific shared vision. So time will tell, um, but I'm excited to continue to go into that. You're right. It's going to be an exciting journey, Brian. We are all
0: rooting for you. And I think that's a great place for us to leave today. Where, if people want to keep up with you, want to keep up with the work you're doing, where are the best places for them
1: to find you online and follow your journey? You can hear from me every single day on Self-Improvement Daily, the podcast. You just type in Self-Improvement Daily into whatever podcasting platform you prefer. If anything stood out to you about social impact, uh, even if you have relationships with people in the nonprofit sector, if you run a conscious business, or if you're just looking to activate that side of your life a little bit more than For purposes, Your Home, So go ahead, visit forpurpose.com, F-O-R purpose.com. And I'd be happy to chat with you about it and share more about it. So you can email me, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at forpurpose.com. I'd be happy to share how you can get involved and what we have in store for the months and years to come. Fantastic. Brian, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it.
0: Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, We are astutely. Com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.